It looks light, but it is not. Last year, we experimented with something. We put out a little production that we called Shadow Empire. It was the life of the Emperor Constantine and how Christianity managed to merge with politics or with state. And it was four short meetings designed to feature the church so that once a little half-hour video presentation had been made, the church would lead out in a Bible study, and then we would invite people to continue with Bible studies. And it went so well, all we really wanted to do was create an environment in which church members would feel comfortable inviting their friends to church, and that's all it was intended to do. But it went well enough, we had piloted it with about 700 churches, it went well enough that people asked to join the church as they went through those initial short series. And so we've learned a few things, we got feedback from the churches, and we're going to do it again uh, and we're going to do it on the anniversary, the 500th anniversary of nailing the theses to the church door in Wittenberg. We're going to talk about what Christianity would look like had it not merged with the state and the fact that outside the bounds of the Roman Empire there were all kinds of scattered barbarian tribes that were Christian and had a biblical Christianity and we're going to told their untold stories. So, before I preach, I'm going to do a little shameless promotion and show you just 60 seconds of what that's going to look like. Would you like to see it? I'm glad you said yes, because that's what I planned, and that's the next slide anyway. So let's, let's do this. Oh, I've got to turn my remote on. Here we go. An empire in collapse. A dark shadow spreads. Foretold by the ancients. into hiding. Your freedom. Paid for with blood. How does faith survive? When darkness reigns, from the makers of Shadow Empire, a pale horse rides. Coming October 2017. I'm really excited about that one. The, if you recognize the voice, the guy who does the Hollywood movie trailers, turns out he likes us, and he'll read a page of text for me for $75. Yeah, it's going to be fun. So stop by, see Michelle at our table. That's all the promoting I'm going to do. Let's, um, I should have more slides. There we go. I'm going to share something with you that I've shared with audiences for some time. I know there are one or two of you that will have seen this study before. I'm going to ask you to be patient because I think everybody ought to see what I've discovered in this passage. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me. And as you're turning to Revelation chapter 7, pray for the translator because we're going to cram a lot of information into a short window of time. Knowing that I'd do that, I printed out all the texts and passages in Spanish for them last night so that 
he's in there. I notice there's a little hole in top of his translation booth, so if he seems to be waning in energy, pour a few Skittles in top of the, or a little feed hole on top of that thing. Are you okay in there? Are you ready? Is your tongue stretched? All right. Revelation 7, verse 9. After this, I need my eyeglasses. I know this passage by heart. After this I beheld. You'll notice there's a pattern in the book of Revelation. John often hears something, then he turns and he sees it. In the first chapter, he hears a voice like many waters. He turns and sees Jesus dressed like a high priest. In Revelation 4 and 5, he hears of the lion of the tribe of Judah, and then he turns and sees a slain lamb. In Revelation 7, he hears about the 144,000, and then he turns. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations, kindreds, peoples, tongues, stand before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, verse 10, saying, Salvation to our God who sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Father in heaven, as we are about to contemplate your word, I know what my weaknesses are. And I know I'm not fit to stand in front of the saints. Unless you take a coal from heaven's altar and singe my lips with it, then I'm willing. So forgive my sins. Cover me with the blood of Christ. Let the only voice we hear in the moments ahead be the voice of Jesus. And we covenant that we'll follow when he speaks. In Jesus' name, amen. I was cleaning my office about a week ago and organizing all of my ancient history textbooks on one shelf, getting ready for Pale Horse. And that shelf is getting longer as the years go by. And I found one volume on that shelf that I remember fondly. I remember the day that it came into my office in an Amazon.com box. I wonder sometimes when I was pastoring on the Alaska Highway, why they didn't have uh, Amazon.com in years past, because we didn't have any bookstores in the town that I was in, and I would wait once a year to go to camp meeting, buy all the books for an entire year, and lug them back into the wilderness. If only they'd had Amazon. This was a book on my shelf on ancient Babylon, not Nebuchadnezzar, but ancient, ancient Babylon, as far back as we have any written record of these people. And I remember the day it came, my assistant, who knew how much I loved to get a new book, had put a bow and ribbon on the new book, so it was waiting for me like a gift on my desk. And when I went in and saw it there, I said, you know what? You know the routine. New book, close the door, no calls, 45 minutes. I want to thumb through this book. So I was thumbing through it, and I was down to about, oh, page 62, 63, 64, somewhere there. Book had a lot of pictures, which is good for me, even some that I could color. But I got all the way down to page 68, where I'm reading about Hammurabi, the great code giver of the ancient Babylonians, and this thought pops into my head. Sean, what are you doing reading a history book? You absolutely detest history, and it's true. In school, young people, just put your fingers in your ears for about five minutes. But in school, in grade school, I hated history. If I was ever known to be off school property during school hours, it was during history class. Don't do it, young people. You will pay a price for skipping school. But, but I hate it. What is the point, I thought, of studying dead people? There's nothing you can do for them. They've made their decisions. There's nothing you can change. I hated it. And to make life even worse, we were forced to study Canadian history. 
And Canadian history is the most... Canadians are too polite. They don't ever do anything interesting. They apologize when you hit them. And, 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 and it was the worst. I got the textbook, and I remember my heart sinking. They're handing out the 10th grade history textbook. And I'm flipping through it thinking, there's got to be a story in here worth reading. There's got to be. And finally I saw it. It said, the worst civil disturbance in Canadian history. Oh, good. So I read, do you know what the worst civil disturbance in Canadian history was? The Winnipeg General Strike of 1919. How many of you, by show of hands, have ever heard of the Winnipeg General Strike of one? One, the Canadian. Let me tell you what it was. It's after World War I, 6,000 Canadians, angry, disaffected Canadians who are out of work, gather in front of City Hall in Winnipeg. And they're agitating. And at the height of their anger, at the height of their unrest, they pushed over an electric streetcar. And that's it. That's the greatest civil disturbance in Canadian. I read that. I thought children in other countries have much better stories. The French stormed the Bastille and cut people's heads off. The Russians had the Bolshevik Revolution. You guys down here were throwing tea in the harbor, but we pushed over an electric streetcar. I hated history class. Here's what I want you to think about. I hated it. And along comes a bunch of Seventh-day Adventists who want to share their message with me. And you people are history on legs. You have charts with dates and numbers. You have people with historical sounding names like Uriah Smith and Hiram Edson. How are you going to reach a kid like me? This is what I want you to contemplate for a few minutes this morning. How are you going to reach me? with a distinctly historical message. Now, if you go to some of the marketing experts out there, here's what they're going to tell you. No way! It's not going to work. If you start talking to this kid about Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome and the Reformation and the Waldensians, he's going to walk out before the first lecture is finished. And lectures? Forget it. Forget lectures. They're the MTV generation. You're going to have to entertain this kid into the church. That's what some of the marketing experts will tell you. And I've looked at what they've had to say. I go to marketing experts because they offer me a lot of valuable data. But unfortunately, we take them a little too seriously when we, they speak about the work of God's church. And we start to take what they say to heart, ignoring the fact that God intends the miraculous to happen in the process of evangelism. But we listen to these guys because they have their finger on the pulse of modern culture. They have the data and the charts to back up what they're saying. And so we listen. Well, they tell us that America's becoming less religious, and so we should probably do a little less preaching from the Bible because it won't work in a postmodern secular culture. By the way, America is not a post-Christian country. I've worked in post-Christian countries. You are not it, not even close. Do you realize that in 1789, when New Hampshire ratified the American Constitution, not bad for a kid who hates history, right? 1789, New Hampshire ratifies the American Constitution, 17% of you went to church. It's still over 30% today. It's more than double what it was at the founding of this nation. 
It's in decline, but it's not over yet. And so we listen, well, maybe we shouldn't preach Bible because the, I saw a study that says America's getting less religious. And I saw a study that says young people don't like church, so maybe we better make it look like it's not church. And we take everything to heart and we listen because they have the data and the degrees and the, and the numbers to prove what they're saying. And on the surface, I'll admit to you, I read the studies. On the surface, they make really good sense. They appeal to our logic. Or maybe, if we're honest, we'd have to admit that it kind of appeals to our fear. Because God says, take this message, three angels, and go preach it to those people. So we look at this message and we say, I like that. That makes good sense to me. And you get excited and then you open the curtains and look at the people you're supposed to preach it to. And it scares the daylights out of you. How am I supposed to share that with them. And so when we see a study that says it can't be done, we breathe a sigh of relief. Well, I would do it if I could, but the studies show not this generation. It won't work. You can't share this message. So the Lord's going to have to finish the work in righteousness. And when the latter rain falls, then we'll get started. Here's a problem. There's a number of problems with everything I just talked about. But here's one. I collect the studies, all of them. Some of them are useful, right? But I line them up on my desk side by side. This expert says I can't reach these people. And this one says I can't reach these people. And this one says I can't reach those people. And when I'm done reading them all, there's nobody left. There's nobody I can reach with the three angels' message. I am left with such a tiny sliver of humanity that it looks nothing like the numberless crowd that John mentioned in the book of Revelation. It looks nothing like the multitudes, the nations, kindreds, tongues, and people mentioned in Revelation 14. And it looks nothing like the description you find in Revelation 18 where a great angel comes down and fills this world with the glory of God before Jesus comes. Bible prophecy does not predict that we fizzle out. Bible prophecy does not predict that we go into the darkness whimpering. Bible prophecy predicts that there is a final blaze of glory that lights up the whole world before Jesus comes. This doesn't die out. This ends well. So if I have to make a choice, if I'm looking at the studies, and some of them are good, don't discount them and I'm looking at the promises of God in Scripture, I've got a choice to make. Either God made a mistake with the message He gave us and the method He gave us, or maybe there's a problem with the studies. Now, I, I don't want to bash academia. I love academics. Get all the education you can. You should. Don't deny yourself an education. Get all the education. But I just have one question. In thousands of years of human academics, how often have we been infallible? When I bought my biology textbook first year at the University of Victoria, it was in its 58th edition. Do you know why? They had already discovered it was wrong 57 times. <laughs> I went back to that bookstore last week and I found the same textbook in its 111th edition. Look, get all the education you can, but, but there's a problem if we begin to put complete faith in our own thinking. Not in the church you don't do that. There is a problem if you fail to recognize that the Bible describes a situation where you can be ever learning and never come to a knowledge of the truth and never actually find anywhere solid to stand and say, I can believe this. 
If I have to choose between what experts tell me and what the Word of God promises me, I can tell you which one has been the safer bet for thousands of years. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. If you have to make a choice, the choice is obvious. And any study that contradicts a promise of God is wrong. How do I know? Because here I am, the kid who detested history class, buying my 2,000th volume on history. Why? Because once I saw that history also tells the story of Jesus, I fell in love with it. Why? Because the Holy Spirit can change the hardest heart before the preacher ever gets their hands on a person. God gets there first. I hated history. I don't hope you don't mind if I speak a little bit boldly this morning. I know you think I already have, (laughs) but I'm warming up. You can turn off the mic when you're tired. I want to be plain because we're running out of time. I'm convinced we have a little window of time to get this done where we're free to do it, and then we're going to have to do it under circumstances that we didn't dream we'd have to do it under. So it's time to get about the business. And I'm sick and tired of the the people who come to me and say, you know, they they talk about why traditional evangelism doesn't work anymore. I'm sick of it. First of all, I'm sick of them calling it traditional evangelism because they usually tack that word on in an attempt to downplay the way that it's worked for 2,000 years. Don't call it that. Sharing the scriptures, I'll demonstrate it to you this morning, still works. It's the only thing that does. In the end, that's the only thing that does. People, Sean, you can't reach people who are heathens with a Bible. And it sounds logical, except I happen to know I was a heathen that you reached with a Bible. Right? And I've seen tens of thousands, literally with my own eyes, tens of thousands of heathens come into the message since. Sean, only people over 55 respond to a traditional prophetic message. That one hurts more as I'm getting closer to that mark. But but it's nonsense. I was 22. That's not ancient history. That's within your lifetime. And I've watched thousands of young people come since every walk of life. Oh, Sean, the, the educated class, they won't respond to a Bible preaching thing. No? I've seen tens of thousands of them respond. I know from what I've seen with my eyes that the Holy Spirit is alive and well, and it works. Maybe you've noticed when Jesus told stories, he had one-size-fits-all stories. The peasants and the Sadducees and Pharisees heard the same story, and they all got the point. You can preach the stories of Jesus because they address every human need that has ever been felt in any class of society, and it always works. God didn't make a mistake. It is high time for us to stop talking ourselves out of finishing the work. That's what we do. We talk ourselves out of it. God knew what he was doing when he gave this assignment to the last generation church. He did not make a mistake with the message. He did not make a mistake with the method. He did not make a mistake with the audience he told. Can you imagine God this morning gathering the angels? We're in church. And he gets the angels together. Gabriel, bring a pen and paper. I've got to have a meeting. What's the problem, Lord? I didn't see. I can't believe how I goofed. I, I, I didn't see the last day postmodern generation coming, and I gave my church the wrong message. We're going to have to do a rewrite. Do you see it? God didn't make a mistake. Now, if there's a problem in our churches, and there is in the West, we've got to ask ourselves a question. Is the problem because God failed? 
or I don't think we've lost our heart to see people come to the Lord. That's not the issue. We all ache when we see empty places in church and we see congregations shrinking. We all ache. I think the problem has come in in recent years where we started to think that we're somehow in charge of the work. That, that, that God gave us an assignment 2,000 years ago and said, all right, make disciples of all nations, and I don't know how you're going to do it. You'll come up with a plan. I'll come back in about 2,000 years and see how you did. We're not in charge. We've started making some silly mistakes. Let me pick on a few churches that you don't know of. Here's a story 10 years ago in the New York Times. A church desperate to get young guys to come to church, and that's a hard demographic to reach. Let's be honest. Guys are stubborn. There's a reason we die younger than the ladies. They wanted young guys to come to church, so they bought a whole bunch of Xboxes and bought editions of Halo and put on a video game night, first-person shooter games, and they thought they'd lead them to Christ afterwards. And the New York Times heard about it and went down to the church scratching their heads. Now, the New York Times is not a friend of Christianity, not generally speaking. But even they, when they were done, wrote this. I'll just read you the last sentence of the article. What price are these people willing to pay to appear relevant? That's a good question, don't you think? Here's another question. What makes our message relevant to the audience? Somehow we've gotten the idea that's up to us. We better make it relevant. Now, I'm not talking about speaking plain language. You need to be a real human being when you share Jesus and speak a language people understand. That's not what we're talking about. But is it our job to make the message relevant? Let's ask it this way. Is it our job to make people think the three angels' message is relevant or... And if you've been in my class the last few days, you'll know the answer. Is it our job to make people think it's relevant, or is it our job to find the people who do think it's relevant? I want to share an interesting passage with you that comes from the book Desire of Ages. It's chapter 37. It's page 349 in English. It's page 315 in Spanish. I found out at 1 o'clock this morning. Let me read this to you, and then we're going to unpack it biblically, and then I'm going to let you go and have your lunch. Does that sound like a deal? All right, if I ran five minutes over, would you forgive me? You don't have a choice, and I'm just going to keep going, so I'm glad you said yes. Here we go. The apostles were members of the family of Jesus. That's important. If you're not a member of the family of Jesus, how do you think you're going to bring people to Jesus? And they, if you haven't made your decision yet, today's the day. Don't, don't wait. You can't win people unless you've made your commitment. The apostles were members of the family of Jesus, and they had accompanied him as he traveled on foot through Galilee. They had shared with him the toils and hardships that overtook them. They had listened to his discourses. They had walked and talked with the Son of God. I've underlined that. It's not our key point this morning, but I've underlined it because unless you're marinating yourself in the presence of Christ, you won't be a soul winner. Don't neglect it. The first hour of the day belongs to God, always. Walked and talked with the Son of God, and from his daily instruction, they had learned how to work for the elevation of humanity. Take your instruction on soul winning from Jesus first. Now here it goes. The important parts are highlighted in, I think that's yellow. As Jesus ministered, who's the minister? As Jesus ministered to the vast multitudes that gathered about him, his disciples were in attendance eager to do his bidding and to lighten his labor. They assisted in arranging the people, bringing the afflicted ones to the Savior and promoting the comfort of all. Now, there you have felt needs ministry. And people have discussed that a lot in the last decades, so I didn't underline it, but let me point it out. It's there. Your job is to mingle with people and address their needs and make them comfortable. But now watch the rest of it. 
They, well, that's hard to read. I'll read it to you, though. They watched for interested hearers, comma, they explained the scriptures to them, and in various ways worked for their spiritual benefit. They taught what they had learned of Jesus and were every day obtaining a rich experience. Let's pull five points out of that for the purposes of our discussion this morning because there's a logical progression of evangelism in these five points. First one, that she points out, Jesus is the one who ministers to the multitudes. Secondly, the disciples were watching for those who were interested. Thirdly, they explained the scriptures to the interested people. Fourthly, they told what they knew of Jesus. And fifthly, they obtained a rich experience. Let's unpack that very quickly in the time that we have left. Point number one. Jesus is the one who ministers to the multitudes. It isn't us. This isn't our work. It's his. This isn't our message. It's his message. There's a story in the book of Revelation that's one of my favorites. Now, any story I'm reading in the Bible is my favorite that day. But this one's a special favorite. Revelation 4 and 5. John is in the throne room of heaven in the prayer. You know the story. He sees God on the throne with a scroll that is sealed with seven seals. It's written on the front and the back. And a voice cries out, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose the seals thereof? And they couldn't find anybody, and he weeps. Now, it's very important that that scroll opens, because if that scroll doesn't open, Revelation 6 can't take place. And Revelation 6 is where they open the seals, and church history begins to unfold from the days of the first century church all the way down through the dark day, falling of the stars, and the second coming of Christ. It's the history of the church, and if nobody opens that scroll, the church can't get started. Then suddenly, John sees, he hears about the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he turns and he sees Jesus, the solution to the problem, looking like a lamb who's been slain. Where do you find a slain lamb in the Bible? It's sanctuary language. The slain lamb can start, I'm convinced, there's probably room for argument, don't, don't argue with me today, I'm too tired, but, but I'm convinced that Revelation 4 and 5 reveals the installation of Jesus as heaven's high priest. You go back to the church on earth, and Jesus says to the disciples, you're going to go to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth, Acts 1, verse 8, 8 or 9. I'm like the Apostle Paul. Somewhere it is written, he always says. He says, you're going to go to the uttermost parts of the earth, but you don't move a muscle. You wait right here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit falls. Then the Holy Spirit falls on them on the day of Pentecost, and they're sharing the gospel with every nation, kindred, tongue, and people that is present and when the audience wants to understand what's happening, Peter stands up in Acts 2 and verse 33, and he says, what you're witnessing now has just happened because Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father. Now listen, we always say the disciples received the Holy Spirit. That's not what the Bible teaches. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and he has received the Holy Spirit and shed it on the church below. Jesus is the one who received the Spirit. Take a look at Psalm 133. It's interesting language. It's prophetic. It's the anointing of the high priest. Behold, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. That's the day of Pentecost. Amen? It's exactly what happened. It is like the precious oil. What is oil a symbol of, saints? Holy Spirit. Upon the head, running down upon the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It's prefiguring Jesus, receiving the Spirit. It runs over him on the church beneath. What's the message? 
He's in the driver's seat. We can't do our work until he's installed as heaven's high priest. It is all run from heaven's sanctuary. All of it is up to Jesus, and none of it is up to us. Read the Bible carefully. God gives people the gift of repentance, Romans 2, not us. Jesus said, no man can come to me unless the Father draws him, John 6, 44. The Holy Spirit, John 16, is the one who gives people conviction. We can't create it. It's all Jesus' work, and none of it is up to us. That's point number one. So point number two, what are the disciples doing? We'll handle these together. The disciples are watching for interested hearers and explaining the Scriptures to those people. If you've been in our classes the last couple of days, what are they doing? They're looking for ripe berries. That's what they're looking for. See, the disciples, you'll notice, it doesn't say that they're trying to make people interested because that's a biblical impossibility. You can't do it. If somebody is not spiritually interested, you cannot create that situation. How do I know? Paul is plain. The natural man receives not the things of of God, their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. If somebody's truly secular, and I've never yet met the truly secular person, they don't really exist, but if somebody's truly secular, there's nothing you can do to make them interested in spiritual things, period. Nothing. You befriend them and you love them and you hang around and you refuse to give up until the moment you hear them respond to the Spirit of God and now your moment has come. God wakes up the heart We don't. We watch for interested hearers. And when the disciples found those people who obviously were hearing the voice of the Spirit of God, they shared the Scriptures with them. That's our job. And that's that's a powerful moment because when you open the Bible with someone who's come under any level of conviction, whether they understand it or not, and you share what the Scriptures say, they recognize the voice in this book. That's the voice that's been speaking to me my whole life. Some of you remember that moment in your own life when the Bible suddenly answered the deepest longings of your own heart. They share, our job is to help them connect the dots and recognize the same voice in the Bible and then appeal to them to become a part of Christ's family. It's crucial. When I understood that, my life as an evangelist got a lot easier. I used to live in terror of altar calls. I still live in a little bit of terror, but, oh, we're going to have an altar call tomorrow night. Oh, boy. What if I stand up front and I go on for 25 minutes Is there just one more? What if I'm not convincing enough? Oh, that terrifies me. And then I realized I'm not convincing anybody. My job is to appeal to those that God is convincing. Bam! The fear is gone. And when I got that one concept, I started to word it differently, and I watched the results go up five and tenfold overnight because you're reaping what is ripe. And there's more of that out there than we can handle. I want you to pay attention to the book of Acts. Go and read the whole thing this week. You'll notice something interesting. There's not a single cold interest anywhere in the book of Acts. Not even one. Not even one. Acts chapter 2, Peter baptizes 3,000. Who are they? The Bible says devout men from every nation under heaven. Already awake. Acts chapter 8. Hey, Philip, I've got a Bible study for you, and you are late. This guy's halfway through the book of Isaiah already, riding in his chariot across the desert, and he needs to get baptized. I've got it all set up. You need to go in and appeal to him. Acts chapter 9. Ananias, I've got a Bible study for you. Oh, I love Bible studies. Lord, what do you have in mind? I have in mind Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus! He kills Christians. I can't give it. Don't worry. I already knocked him on the ground. He's blind. He's been in the dark for three days, and he's ready for you to go in and make the appeal. (laughs) 
Cornelius, the first Gentile convert. Who is he? He's a devout man. That's the language of the Scriptures. There are no cold interests anywhere in the Bible. Anywhere in the Bible. Do we have a minute for a story? I'm going to do it. Will you forgive me if I throw in a story? You have to. The Bible says, Jesus is clear. If I don't get forgiven, you don't go to heaven. I'm at the grocery store. It doesn't happen often that I'm home on a Friday. But when I am, Jean sends me to the grocery store. But she doesn't trust me to make decisions. Because I'm Dutch. I'll second-guess everything. One-ply toilet paper is good enough. Cheaper. Dutch and Avenus, cheap as they get. So I have to have my cell phone. She's busy at the house, and I'm on the cell phone, and she's telling me what I'm allowed to buy up and down the aisles. And as I'm yabbering on the phone one day in Vons, do you have Vons out here? It's like Safeway. I'm in Vons, and as I'm yabbering on my phone, the lady behind the deli counter thinks that I'm talking to her because she, she can't see the phone. So I said, hey, honey, i got to go just a second. Somebody thinks I'm talking to them. So I hung up. I said, I'm so sorry. That's so rude. I hate it when people do that to me. She said, no problem. Not, not a problem at all. But now that I have your attention, we have whole roasted chickens on sale for $5 each. Don't they look good? I said, they look great. Don't they smell good? Oh, I said, they smell really good. How many do you want? None. Why don't you want any? I'm a vegetarian. She said, you're not a vegetarian. You're just trying to get out of buying my chicken. I said, no, no, I really am a vegetarian. She said, why would anybody become a vegetarian? I said, oh, I found out it was better for me. That's usually the, just, you know, I just found out that was better for me. I said, oh, that's interesting. She said, so you didn't grow up vegetarian? No, I didn't grow up vegetarian. I said, oh, I used to be a vegetarian. I said, really? You used to be a vegetarian? Yes, yeah, so now I eat meat, though. And, but I grew up vegetarian. I said, really? She said, I was really, really vegetarian. I think, what's really, really vegetarian? Although we have a few of those wandering around, too, that are really, really, really vegetarian. And she said, we were so vegetarian, my mom made a special K roast every weekend. And I thought, ah, you are so busted. I mean, red flag, bells going off in my head because no one else on earth eats special K roast. So I thought, I'm going to change the language. I said, ma'am, I said, that's fascinating. I said, you grew up Adventist and I didn't. And she said, yeah, whoop. She said, I said, I knew it. I knew it. And I said, this is your lucky day. I'm an Adventist preacher. You have been sent in here by God. You're busted. You haven't been to church in years, have you? <laughs> and she started to cry. She said, I was thinking about this that this morning and I prayed if the Lord would open the door I'd go back God's always there first we watch for interested hearers we spend too much time talking and not enough time listening it's my greatest weakness but the fruits falling off the trees all around us and we're obsessed with what can't be won and all the while we're obsessed with what can't be won the ripe fruit is falling to the ground and spoiling by the thousands they watch for interested hearers. They explain the scriptures to them. That's such an inviolable principle that Jesus himself, Luke chapter 24, the risen Jesus is with two disappointed disciples who look a little like the postmoderns. They used to know what they believed was certainty, and now they don't know what to believe. Kick in the dirt. We thought Jesus would be Messiah. He just had to reveal himself. Guys, I'm alive, but he doesn't. Beginning at Moses and the prophets, he showed them all things in the scriptures concerning him. If Bible study is how Jesus did it, that's how I do it. That's how I do it. 
The scriptures make sense to people who are under conviction. It makes sense to people who are waking up under the influence of the Spirit of God. Then they told what they knew of Jesus. This is really why God has brought you into the equation, frankly. That's why you're there. They'll hear the Spirit in their heart. They'll read what the Bible says. There's one more step. Now they're hoping it's true. So they're going to look up from your Bible, be conscious of this, and they're going to look at you next. And they watch us. Don't think they don't. Even the people who put up the bravest front are watching us. Daniel chapter 6, Darius. Love the story. He's pacing the floor at night. He can't sleep. I love it because I've been an insomniac from the age of eight. I've never slept through the night in my life that I remember. So he's a king. He doesn't show this side of himself to the public, but there he is pacing the floor. Why? He made an awful deal. He made a deal that ends in death, and it's irreversible. It's a lot like what the whole human race did in Eden. And early in the morning after pacing the floor, he runs down to the tomb. Oh, Sean, there's no tomb in that chapter. Yes, there is. It's a type of the resurrection of Christ. They roll the stone over the door, seal it. They unseal it in the morning, and the one who should have been dead is alive. It's a type of Christ. He runs down there in the morning, and they roll the stone back, and he calls in, Daniel, are you okay? That's not what he says. The God whom you serve continually, has he been able to save you? Why does he ask that question? Because if he can do something for you, maybe he can do something for me. They watch you. They watch us. They all do. I know because I had not lost one heathen friend since my heathen days. And they watch and they watch and they watch. And the minute somebody's wife is terminal, or then they call. What did you find? I've waited years for some of those phone calls. But you love people and you stay in their lives and you wait for the moment when it's ripe. And you share Jesus with them. And nobody can argue with your testimony. They'll argue about the Sabbath. They'll argue about baptism. They'll argue about the state of the dead. But they can't argue this. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And some of them will look at me and say, Sean, you're still a rotter. I said, I know, but by the grace of God, I'm less rotten today than I was yesterday. And by the grace of God, I'll be less rotten again tomorrow. And it's going to take a long time till you don't think I'm rotten, but I'm telling you I've found hope. They told what they knew of Jesus, and because of that, they obtained a rich experience. This is the real reason you're involved in evangelism. God doesn't need us to get it done. But we broke faith with God in the Garden of Eden. We stopped trusting Him, and He's given us the impossible task to teach us to trust Him. Take this message and share it with these people. That's impossible, exactly, says God. Joshua chapter 1. Joshua has inherited the mantle of leadership. It's an awful assignment. Right? You don't want to follow a smash success like Moses. You want to follow someone who wasn't any good. <laughs> and so he spends a lot of time out of the camp praying. What am I doing, Lord? What do I do? And one day, Joshua 5, Jesus appears to him, sword drawn. I'm the commander of the Lord's host. Let's go in. Now he has to go back and sell the whole plan to the Israelites who didn't see that. He's one of the last of his generation. There's just Joshua and Caleb. We're kind of in the same situation. We have people who are directly from Jesus, and we're going to have to take their word for some things in this movement. He says, guys, it's time to go into Canaan. Oh, good, we don't want to die out here in the wilderness like Grandma and Grandpa did. Let's go in. What are we going to do? We're going to have to cross the Jordan River, aren't we, Joshua? Let's get working on a bridge. No, we're not going to have a bridge. What are we going to do? We're going to follow the ark. What's that? 
That's a throne room in the heavenly sanctuary. It's always been the control center of God's movement. He's always been the one in charge. We're going to follow the ark. Joshua, that's an awful idea. It's flood season. That river is six feet deep. We've been in slavery for hundreds of years. Not any of us is taller than five foot six. We're going to drown as we go through the river. Follow the ark. So they did. It didn't make any sense. There's not a study on earth that would have told you to do it that way. Step into the river, the waters part. They can't believe it. They, well, what's first? I guess we start, we practice on some of these little rinky-dink villages around here, right? No, no, we're going for the big apple. We're going for Jericho. Jericho, they're tough in there. Have you seen those people? We better get started. We need more armaments. We need earthen works. No, we don't need any of that. What do you mean? We're going to follow the ark. That's what we're going to do. We're going to follow the ark. That's a horrible idea, Joshua. We're going to go march, what? We're going to march where? Near the city? No, around the city, guys. Around the city. They're going to pick us off one by one from the wall of the city. And he says, well, we're not just doing it one day either. We're doing it seven days in a row. That's an awful plan. You're going to follow the ark. That's what you're going to do. And they did. And you'll notice that when the walls fell, not one of them ever touched it. Because God got there first. He's trying to build your trust. You notice in Joshua 6, and I think it's verse 19, that when the walls of Jericho fell, there was a mighty shout like there will be at the second coming of Christ. There was a trumpet blast like there will be at the second coming of Christ. And it says when the walls fell, the gold, the silver, the brass, and the iron of that city were absorbed into God's kingdom. Just like the statue of Daniel 2 will crumble one day and be, the kingdoms of this world will blow away and the kingdom of Christ fills this earth. And when that happens, it will not be because of our efforts. It'll be because of Christ's. The only role we've been given is to follow. Because we stopped trusting Him when we sinned. And God says, I have exactly the exercise you need to teach you to believe me. The impossible task. Years ago, we lived in a house in California, and, and, and ministry budgets don't go very far in California, and so it was a dump. It was just an embarrassing dump. I lived in a dump. Some days I looked at the dumpster where the homeless guy lived and wondered who was dumb. I was paying for mine, and... but we had a spiral staircase. It sounds grand, but we, I mean, that's the whole reason we, 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 oh, we could play Gone with the Wind whenever we wanted, just come down the staircase and... And any time Gene went out for the day, I would take the kids, who were like two and four at that age, and I would let them climb up the outside of the banister, up to the top, about nine feet up, up above the front door. I see the women raising their eyebrows. Up above the, the front door, because a dad's job in life is to recklessly endanger his children for entertainment. And they would climb up there, and there was a little ledge about 18 inches by 12 inches where they would sit and kick their feet. I go down to the front door, nine feet down, and you know what I did, didn't don't you? Jump! And they'd come off so quickly it was like lemmings. Boom, boom. I'd barely catch them in time, and they'd run back up the staircase again. Boom, boom. Jump. Dad, this is so much fun. They'd run up there, and we'd keep doing that all morning until we heard Gene's car pull into the driveway. And, and then we got out the coloring books and sat at the table like mature adults. And, And then I remember the day, Gene went out, <laughs> let's go on the stairwell, kids, okay. Went up the stairs, they're sitting there dangling their legs. And I said, jump. And for the first time, 
they hesitated. And it hurt my feelings. What's up? Well, Dad, your eyesight's not what it was. And, <laughs> and you've had a back surgery. What if you don't catch us? Do you understand that's exactly what we did to God in the Garden of Eden? We quit jumping. You're going to need faith to live in the kingdom of heaven. It operates on that principle. Lucifer wasn't allowed in the counsels of God. You won't be either when you get there. You're going to live by faith for all eternity that God's word is good. And so already in this lifetime, he says, I've got the impossible job. I'm going to teach you to jump again. Take this message and preach it to those people. But Lord, it looks so impossible. I know, says God, but don't you understand? The armies of heaven are in the community already. I'm alive and I'm working in every home up and down your street. And all I'm asking you to do is follow the ark and get out there and meet those people. Spend time with them. I'll show you who's ready. I'll show you who's ready to get invited to church, who's in ready to hear about Jesus and the cross. We have everything we need. We've got the right message. We've been given the right methods. The only thing we're missing at this point is our courage, our faith. So I'm going to ask you as you're sitting here, if you heard God's Spirit speak to your heart this morning, maybe you're a little scared to share Jesus with somebody. It's okay. I'm terrified every time I do it. That's the whole point of the exercise. I can tell you now 25 years later, not once have I jumped and Jesus didn't catch me. He'll catch you. Are you going to choose to believe it? If that's you, it's not a y'all stand-up moment, but if it's you and you heard him say something, you need to try this. If you're willing to trust him, will you stand up wherever you are? Father in heaven, we live with so much fear. The work you've given us intimidates us. But we pledge to follow the Lamb wherever he goes this morning, with our hearts beating wildly in our chests, with our tongues getting tied once in a while, knowing we'll make mistakes. We're going to follow anyway. And again, we ask this morning that you would give us the eyes that heaven has so that we learn to see people the way Jesus sees them, every one of them, a candidate for the kingdom of heaven. Breathe through our hearts with your Holy Spirit. Blow the dust out of our souls. Let us see that the world is just about to light up with the glory of Christ. We want to be standing in the army of God at that moment. We look forward to being caught up in your arms. And we pray it this morning in Jesus' name.